Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. It was a proud day at Tel Aviv when that great Zionist leader, Dr. Weissmann, set foot on the shores of Israel. As president of the Provisional State Council, he came to deliver the inaugural address. The veteran leader, spared to see the triumphant conclusion of his life's work, was indeed entering the promised land. He paid tribute to all who had borne the heat of the day, especially Premier David Ben-Gurion. An auspicious beginning for the new government of Israel. England the almost military-like skills which Nathan Mayer Rothschild had used to transfer huge sums of money to Wellington's troops and Britain's allies during the campaign against Napoleon were put to the use of the Jewish community. In addition to offering cash support to the synagogues in London, Nathan initiated a series of discussions which led eventually to the formation of the United Synagogue thus streamlining the charitable work of the smaller constituent synagogues. Nathan's children recognized their obligations just as keenly. His eldest son, Lionel, became the first Jewish member of Parliament after an 11-year battle, and I read on their archive that the battle partially consisted of that he did not want to swear on a Bible that had the New Testament in it, which was required at the time, because he did not want to swear allegiance to Jesus Christ. And they actually kind of brag about that on their website, but whatever. It goes on to say he paved the way for the removal of the final civil disabilities affecting the Jewish community. As the children began to buy country estates, the areas around their mansions were transformed by planned improvements to housing for artisans. The implementation of social facilities, such as health care provision, and an assurance that the state workers could rely on regular employment. These are a few of the other things that they created. 
the Jewish Free School, Bell Lane, Jewish Infant School, Commercial Street, the Westminster Jews Free School, Stephanie Jewish Schools, Bayswater Jewish Schools, Jewish Board of Guardians, Jewish Ladies Lying in Charity, Jewish Hospital and Orphan Asylum, Norwood, Jewish Immigration Society, Jewish Convalescent Home, Jewish Ladies West End Charity, Institution for the Relief of Indigent Blind of the Jewish Persuasion, Society for Relieving Aged and Needy Jews, and the United Synagogues, sourced from the RothschildsArchive.org. They do love to brag on there. It's actually worth it. Go on RothschildsArchive.org and just go into the search engine and put in Timeline, and it gives you a pretty darn good timeline of the things that they've accomplished. Of course, they're whitewashing things, but they do brag, and braggers reveal more than they ought to a lot of times, so it's definitely worth checking out. In 1810, the Rothschilds began a campaign to get back to Israel, so they created a new brand of Judaism called Reform Judaism, which would establish a new country, which is now Israel. Only the Rothschilds could do that because to create a worldwide movement costs a lot of money. Theodore Herzl's The Jewish State, or Der Judenstadt, was originally titled Address to the Rothschilds. They financed Karl Marx and the League of Just Men, too. They helped finance Judaism, Communism, and Nazism. Their goal has been constant, and you can't succeed unless you have goals. Eustace Mullins Also from their archive, in 1882, Edmund de Rothschild began to buy land in southern Syria for Ottoman Palestine. He became a leading proponent of the Zionist movement, financing the first site at Rishon Lezion and promoting industrialization and economic development. Edmund played a pivotal role in Israel's wine industry. Under the supervision of his administration, farm colonies and vineyards were established and two major wineries were opened in Rishon Lezion and Zikron Yaakov. In 1923, Edmund established the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association, PICA, with his son James as the first president. PICA acquired more than 125,000 acres of land and set up business ventures to enable the work which he started in Palestine to be continued. For his Jewish philanthropy, Baron Edmund became known as the Hanadiv HaYadua, Hebrew for the known benefactor or the famous benefactor. Again, from the Rothschild's archive. Now from SirSockHouse.com, Rothschild's land purchases and early Israel. The family owned more than 90,000 acres or 400 dunams in the Jezreel Valley in Palestine, having purchased it from Ottoman authorities in their dealings with the empire. Evidence of the remarkable concentration of wealth accumulated by the Sursaks, who had already owned tens of thousands of acres of the finest land in the region, can be found in records detailing their sustained purchases of numerous new villages every year. In 1906, the Sursak family sold land in Palestine to the Baron Edmund de Rothschild's Jewish National Fund, with the documents revealing that in 1929, under the British mandate, the Sursaks sold the majority of their holdings to the Baron. Because the villagers paid tithes 
to the Sursok family in Beirut for the right to work the agricultural lands in the villages, they were deemed tenant farmers by the British Mandate authorities in Palestine, and the right of the Sursok family to sell the land to the JNF was upheld by the authorities. The fateful story of the Jezreel Valley began when the Ottoman government sold the Marj Ibn Amir in 1872 to the Sursok family of Beirut. The Zionists began to show interest in buying the Jezreel Valley in 1891, but the Palestine Land Development Company, the PLDC, a Zionist land purchasing agency, only made its first purchases in 1910. The PLDC acquired land for the Jewish National Fund, or the JNF. In ancient times, the Israelian was the granary, and by the Arabs is still regarded as the most fertile tract of Palestine. The soreness felt owing to the sale of the large areas by the absentee Sursok family to the Jews and the displacement of the Arab tenants is still a source of debate. Recent documents have revealed that the Sursoks were absentee landlords in the vast Marj Ibn or the Amr Jezreel Valley in northern Palestine for over a century. In 1929, under the British Mandate, the Sursoks sold the valley to Baron Rothschild. The European dynasty of German-Jewish origin that established European banking and finance houses from the late 18th century had established a fund to buy land in Palestine and encourage the immigration of Jews to Palestine. The Palestine Jewish Colonization Association, PICA, was founded in 1924 by Edmund to administer the settlements he had created in Palestine and indeed took over the role of the Jewish Colonization Association of 1900. PICA was the largest Jewish landowner in Palestine. Edmund's involvement with the Jewish settlements began in 1882 when he funded Rishon Lezion, the first in Zion. He quickly began to establish more settlements, including the Zikron Yaakov and the Maskareth Batya, named after his parents, which were provided with social and religious institutions. Edmund also stimulated the economic development of the settlements by investing in new crops such as wine, grapefruit, avocado, and industrial enterprises such as silk production. After Edmund's death in 1934, his son James Rothschild presided over the affairs of Pika until 1957, the year of his death. He decided to transfer all his Pika holdings to national institutions. His determination to continue to support Israeli institutions was carried out after his death by his wife, Dorothy, who founded the Yad Hanadiv, that's the main Rothschild's philanthropic arm, I believe. The sale of the Sursok lands and other Jewish land purchases in districts where the soil is most productive were regarded as showing that the immigrants would not be content to occupy underdeveloped areas and that economic pressure upon the Arab population was likely to increase. When Edmund died in Paris in 1934, he left a legacy which included the reclamation of nearly 500 dunams of land and almost 30 settlements. Official purchasing organizations, such as the Palestine Land Development Company, focused on consummating the transfer of some 75,000 dunams of land in the Jezreel Valley owned by the Sursoks of Beirut. On December 18, 1918, the PDLC concluded an agreement with Najib and Albert Sursok, 
for the purchase of 71,356 dunams in the Jezreel Valley, including Tel Adas. For their part, the Ottomans tried to limit mass land acquisition and immigration, but had their hands tied by European pressure and also greed of officials in the region. By 1930, Pika had amassed 5,200 hectares, which I read are equivalent to 2.7 acres, in various parts of the country on which it established 50 settlements that reflected the diverse models that had evolved by this time. Villages such as Pardes Hana and Benyamina and Givat Ada, all named for members of the Rothschild's family. Kibbutzim and Mashavim and urban localities such as the Benai Brek and Herzliya or Herzliya. Pika continued to assist rural settlements as well as developing or financing economic enterprises, including some of the lasting importance in the Israeli economy, wineries, the Potash Company, the Electric Company, and Nesher Cement, to name only a few. By the end of the mandate in 1948, Pika had amassed a large proportion of the Jewish-owned land in Palestine, in the next 17 years, the Baron spent $100 million in purchasing lands, building factories, schools, and hospitals, and disseminating Jewish settlements to produce what he needed on these new lands. In 1912, the PLDC contracted to purchase a large tract in the Jezreel Valley from the Sursok family of Beirut and Alexandria in 1912, but was unable to complete the transaction due to the raging World War, much to the dismay of the Baron. The initial purchased lands were owned by the Sursocks and many other feudal lords who became significant leaders in the Lebanese political system due to the money they got from selling their lands in Palestine. The agreement concluded between the owners, the Sursocks and the PLDC, stipulated that the Sursocks would have to pay a $50,000 penalty if they did not sell the tract to the PLDC. The Jewish National Fund was founded in 1901 by the Baron to buy and develop land in the Ottoman Palestine for Jewish settlement. The Palestine Jewish Colonization Association, PICA, was created in 1924 under the presidency of Mr. James D. Rothschild, MP, the Baron's eldest son, in order to administer Palestinian colonies. In 1953, the JNF was dissolved and reorganized as an Israeli company under the name Karen Kemet Le Yisrael, JNF KKL. In 1912, into which the Rothschild's projects were ultimately absorbed, cannot be understated, but the Baron is the true focus. Not only for the detailed story of what he accomplished at this primitive stage when almost everything trembled on the edge of collapse, but even more for the chance it gives us to see the mysterious appeal of Zion transforming a man's life to his own surprise and even, it might be said, against his will. These purchases transacted mainly with the Greek Orthodox Sursok family effectively allowed the Yeshuv to dominate the greater interior valley of Israel. Urgency for large colonization, quick purchase, and rapid self-sufficiency by means of general agriculture made the Jezreel Valley the focus of the Zionist organization's land purchasing plans. The Zionist organization thought the Jezreel Valley to be significantly more desirable, for instance, 
than even the coastal region where smaller parcels of land were available for purchase. There is a Benjamin's Pool. It's this beautiful fountain that's dedicated to Edmund de Rothschilds in the Zikron Yaakov Valley in Israel. There is the Edmund de Rothschilds Park. There is the Ramat Hana'adiv Israel. Rothschilds Boulevard in Tel Aviv, one of the main roads going through Tel Aviv. The Dorothy de Rothschilds Grove by the Knesset. And we said villages such as Pardes Hana, Bin Yamina, and the Givat Ada, named after Rothschilds members. There are several coins with Edmund de Rothschild's face on it. The 500 shekel bill has Edmund de Rothschild's face on it. So the Rothschilds were very instrumental in creating the modern state and have ever since been very, very active there in the Holy Land. And let's not forget that Lionel Walter Rothschild, Lord Rothschild, was the one to whom the Balfour Declaration was addressed to in 1917. It was England's proposal regarding the establishment of the Jewish state, and it went directly to him. Speaking of the Balfour Agreement, I should probably go ahead and read it just for those who don't know anything about this subject. On November 2, 1917, the British government expressed its sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations and announced that it would use its best endeavors to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. The announcement came in a letter from Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild II, the unofficial leader of the British Jewish community. The Balfour Agreement became the diplomatic foundation stone, isn't that interesting that they use that, of the State of Israel. The origins of the letter had began in the early 20th century when Haim Wiseman, the leading spokesman for Zionism in Britain, began to solicit support among the British people shortly after he settled in Manchester in 1904. Did you ever learn any of this on mainstream talk radio or the news? How about in history class? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. And one of the things that you don't hear very much in regards to the creation of the modern state is that it created many, many business opportunities. And we'll get into that a little bit later. We'll talk about some of the businesses there. But we learned right from the start that the Rothschilds had this in mind. They didn't just buy it out of the goodness of their hearts. They were kind of setting up their own state, it seems like to me. And... That's why they've funded so much there, including the Knesset. They've done a lot there that people are just not aware of, and we're going to get much, much deeper into that. Now, there is a book. I have not read it, but I've heard about it. It's called Two Rothschilds and the Land of Israel. I'm sure it's a whitewashed version as well, but I'm sure you could also find some good information in there. At the beginning of the 1980s, just prior to marking 100 years of support from the well-known generous benefactor, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, to the Jewish community in Israel, the Rothschilds Foundation, or Yad Hanadiv, and Dorothy de Rothschild, who headed it at the time, 
approached the Israeli government and offered a donation for the construction of a new Supreme Court building near the Knesset. In so doing, Mrs. de Rothschild sought to fulfill the intention of her late husband, Lord James de Rothschild, the son of the great benefactor, who wished to contribute two important buildings to the young country, one being the legislature and the second for the Supreme Court. Lord de Rothschild died in 1957, but under his will and through his generosity, the Knesset complex was built and was inaugurated in 1966. As a result of the offer made by Mrs. de Rothschild and the Rothschild Foundation, and after consultations and discussions that took place within the government, official approval was given for the donation of the funding to build the new Supreme Court. In 1986, the Rothschild Foundation organized an architectural competition for the design of the new building. This competition was held in two phases with 180 architectural firms from Israel and around the world participating. The winners of the competition were the late architects Ram Karmi and his sister Ada Karmi of Tel Aviv. Jerusalem Post here. The Knesset building was built because of the largesse of James Jimmy de Rothschild, son of Lord Edmund de Rothschild. Jimmy, following the tradition of his father, was an extremely generous philanthropist. In 1957, shortly before his death, he told Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, that he would contribute six million pounds, then called lira, toward the building of a permanent home for the Knesset in Jerusalem. Now, this is from Israel National News. It says, Supreme Court built to Masonic Guidelines. Article in the Maraviv points to Eye of Providence, Pyramids, and Rothschild's involvement as a telltale sign. And if you've never looked at the pictures, Vigilant Citizen has a great dive on the Israeli Supreme Court building. It says here, Was the Supreme Court building in Jerusalem designed in accordance with the ideology of the secret order of Freemasons? Gilet Chomsky, a respected writer, has devoted an article to this question in the Mararif NRG. Chomsky says that the evidence of Masonic intervention in the building's planning is hard to deny. Right at the entrance to the building, she notes, the sign thanking the donors whose funding made its construction possible features the Eye of Providence, a well-known Masonic symbol that represents God's all-seeing eye, which also appears on the U.S. dollar bill. Yes, there is a large, fairly large pyramid sticking up out of the center of the building and has a window right where the eye would be. Chomsky cites evidence that has been put forth by an amateur historian, Elod Pressman, in a website called Conspill, that's C-O-N-S-P-I-L dot com. It says Pressman is a student of philosophy and mathematics. According to Pressman, the building is full of Masonic imagery, and the tours conducted through it are held in accordance with Masonic principles. Chomsky notes that the Freemasons exist as a recognized organization in Israel, and that people who want to join them can do so. A study by Yuval Kaspi and Lilak Shira Gavish has established that parts of Tel Aviv were built by people who belonged to the Freemasons and other secret groups, with names like Benai Moshe, Benai Brit, no connection to the better-known Benai Brith, and Benai Zion, which were established by former Freemasons and 
imitated Masonic ideology with an added Jewish angle. The Supreme Court building in Jerusalem, notes Chomsky, was built in 1992 with funding that had been offered by Yad Hanadiv Foundation. Many members of the Rothschilds family, which owns Yad Hanadiv, were proud members of the Freemasons, she says. Like I said on their Rothschilds archive website, they do talk about that. A person taking in the tour of the Supreme Court ascends inside a pyramid which peaks on the roof of the court building. There is a hole in the tip of the pyramid which represents, according to this explanation, the Eye of Providence. The tourists climb 30 steps to reach the top of the building and ascend from a relatively dark entrance lobby to a well-lit top floor with a beautiful view of Jerusalem. Chomsky explains that this can be seen as corresponding to an ascent to enlightenment in accordance with the Mason's beliefs. The number 30 represents the first 30 levels a Mason can achieve in his life out of a total of 33. The last three levels might be located in the library, which is divided into three floors. The first floor is for lawyers, the second for active judges, and the third for retired judges only. Now, this great little blog here, snippetsandsnappets.blogspot.com, I will include this in the show notes. It says, the Israel Supreme Court, the creation of the Rothschilds. I've got some great pics in here that I've never seen before. Very, very interesting. This building, all around it actually, is very, very Masonic. Very interesting. You can see the pyramid from a different angle. There is a Freemason Lodge, Solomon's Pillars Lodge, not far from there, according to this. And right under the pyramid, on the inside of the building, it says there is an apex, sacred geometric patterns, and there's all kinds of pyramids going every which way. And in the center, I can't see from this angle. It kind of looks like a star, but I cannot make it out. One of the stairwells kind of looks like the Vesica of Pisces. It's just uh, amazing. And then here it does show, it says the courtyard has a beautiful zen-like feel. A source of water is constantly bubbling and streaming through a narrow path towards a strange stone. Official Supreme Court documentation say the courtyard is a physical representation of the verse from Psalm 8511, Truth springs from the earth and the righteous look down from heaven. But this looks like something, it actually reminds me of the Vatican, the way it goes into the Vatican, you know, the highway there, and then it turns into a circle right there where the obelisk is. And then it says the judge's office overlooks the courtyard, so they are symbolically looking down from heaven. The stream of water goes straight and ends up right under a strange and enigmatic stone. It's a really strange-looking, shiny stone. That's the polished stone, guys. That is the Philosopher's Stone. There's no question. It's very shiny. It's not a rough ashlar stone. This is the perfected stone. And there is some crazy, it looks basically to me like sun symbolism. As you go down the steps outside, it leads to this round area with these, like, one, two, three, four, five different walkways that go out that look like the rays of the sun. Now it's got these large 
pomegranates. They look to be probably four feet high, and I would say mm, three and a half feet wide. They look like they're maybe made of iron. It says here, those pomegranates lying on the floor might seem extremely insignificant for the average onlooker. They, however, hold a special signification for students of the mysteries of Freemasonry. Manly P. Hall says in Secret Teachings of All Ages, Among the ancient mysteries, the pomegranate was also considered to be a divine symbol of such peculiar significance that its true explanation could not be divulged. It was termed by the Kabiri the forbidden secret. Many Greek gods and goddesses are depicted holding the fruit or flower of the pomegranate in their hands, evidently to signify that they are givers of life and plenty. Pomegranate capitals were placed upon the pillars of Joshin and Boaz, standing in front of King Solomon's temple, and by the order of Jehovah, pomegranate blossoms were embroidered upon the bottom of the high priest's ephod. It goes on to say, as stated by Hall, Pomegranates were placed on top of the pillars standing in front of Solomon's temple. If you have minimal knowledge of Masonic teachings, you know that the Temple of Solomon and the pillars named Joshin and Boaz are of utmost importance. The capitals were enriched by pomegranates of bronze covered by bronze network and ornamented with wreaths of bronze and appear to have imitated the shape of the seed vessel of the lotus or Egyptian lily, a sacred symbol to the Hindus and Egyptians. That's Albert Pike, Morals and Dogma. It says that some occult buildings hide the star of Ishtar, fertility symbol, at the center on the lower rotunda. Is it hidden there? It's hard to see. This is a darker picture, but the rotunda looks occult in itself. Of course, if you're not into this stuff and you haven't looked into Freemasonry and occult symbolism, this won't mean anything to you. It'll be just another conspiracy theory. But obviously, the symbolism and this design was purposeful. Regardless of whatever platform you're listening to the Oddcast on, may I suggest you get on over to alternatecurrentradio.com and check out all their fine music and talk shows. That's my podcasting family. You can find the Oddcast there, but many other great shows like their flagship, The Boiler Room. Let me tell you, they've been great to me, and they intend on bringing you the unfiltered truth in the new era. So if you want to support something real, support alternatecurrentradio.com and tell them the odd man sent you. Thanks. I just wanted to add this. This is not really anything important, but I collect these quotes and this information, and this was slightly connected, or maybe really connected, but let's just read it here. The Church of Satan founder, Anton LaVey, whose real name was Howard Stanton Levy, yes, he was Jewish, authorized his official biography that was written by his widow, Blanche Barton. It was entitled, The Secret Life of a Satanist. In it, she wrote that he often reminisced about, before becoming known as the devil's left-hand man, being an arms dealer for Israel, its allies, and enemies as well. LeVay added a page in the Satanic Bible for Sir Basil Zaharoff, who was a gunrunner employed by Nathan Rothschild, the first Baron Rothschild. Also, Anton LeVay has a grandson named Stanton Zaharoff LeVay. 
if that doesn't clear up the controversy. Now, let's not forget that the Rothschilds and Rockefellers, even though people still see those two families as not having much power any longer, they actually do have a lot of power, and you just don't hear their names. They've got, the Rothschilds have always done this for a long time. Oftentimes, the things they own don't have the Rothschilds' name, and the Rockefellers usually put their name on things, at least at the first part of their power, but as time went on, they started doing that less and less. So you often don't know what these people even own, but they are the two families behind the inclusive capitalism scam, which is part of the Great Reset. So keep that in mind while we're talking about this. It also says here on touristisrael.com, the Rothschilds Boulevard was one of the first streets to be built in the city of Tel Aviv, a little over a hundred years ago, named originally as Rehov Ha'am, the Street of the People. It was renamed to reflect the generosity of Baron Edmund de Rothschild of the French Rothschild Banking Dynasty. Here again on Israel National News from April 18, 2010, Rothschilds donate new library. The Rothschilds meet with Prime Minister and pledge $150 million for new national library. No need to go into that, kind of boring, but just another example of how they are funding a lot of things there in the Holy Land. There's also the Cesara Center, which was jointly owned by the Rothschilds and the Israeli government. They have a matching grant initiative. This initiative is a collaboration between the Edmund de Rothschilds Foundation, and the Jewish Funders Network. The World Jewish Congress President Ronald S. Lauder honors the Rothschild family with the Theodore Herzl Award. The Rothschilds own Bank Yahav for Israeli government employees. There's also rothschildcp.com forward slash cadets. And this is in Hebrew, so I cannot read it, but it looks like it's some kind of agreement. It says, Rothschild's Cadets for Local Israeli Government. This is from a few years ago. Genie Energy is a company that is actually drilling in the Golan Heights. They've got a big old Star of David up there on a flagpole. They're drilling for oil, and guess who else is invested in Genie Energy? Of course, Jacob Lord Rothschild, former Vice President Dick Cheney, Fox's Rupert Murdoch, and former Secretary of Treasury Larry Summers. Also, former CIA Director James Woolsey and Energy Secretary Bill Richardson. And here is the... Shalvi Hyman Encyclopedia of Jewish Women. Beth Sabi Rothschild, she lived from 1914 to 1999. Baroness Beth Sabi, or Bathsheba, was the scion of a well known philanthropic family. She supported Martha Graham and in 1956 brought Graham's company to Israel. All right, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've definitely heard me talk about Cecil Rhodes. The guy who basically was paid by the Rothschilds and the royal family of England to go over to Africa, South Africa, and steal the gold and diamonds. And he got extremely rich doing so. And that's where we get the Rhodes Trust, 
the Rhodes Scholarships, Chatham House, or the Royal Institute of International Affairs. That's where we get the Council on Foreign Relations and all of its many offshoots that are all over the world. That's where we get the Trilateral Commission. It all sprang from that well. And Cecil Rhodes wills. He left his fortunes to putting together these secretive societies to take over the world. Sounds like a conspiracy, but if you've listened to this show, you know it's not. It was in his wills. So, something interesting, there's a connection here, not just with the Rothschilds funding Cecil Rhodes, but it turns out that the father of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, was a big fan of Cecil Rhodes, and these guys were around about the same time. Herzl, I think, was a little bit younger than Rhodes, but not very much. And he looked up to Rhodes for what he had done as far as colonialism goes in South Africa and his ability to develop South Africa and basically take it from the natives there, which he did. And so we actually read a little bit about that, and I found a great source for this particular episode that I found after I started doing it, but Richard Grove from Tragedy and Hope, he did a book, a free PDF book on the Rothschilds, and it's very good, and if you know Richard Grove's work, you know he is very thorough, he cites all of his work, so it's very helpful to find guys like this. These are the guys that I like to find to get information from, and so He says in here, The Rothschilds, Cecil Rhodes, and Theodore Herzl Connection. As we're about to learn in the forthcoming chapter, the goal of the Rothschilds' financial legacy of Cecil Rhodes was to reintegrate America into the British Empire. Rhodes' plan was admired by many, and among Rhodes' acolytes was Theodore Herzl, creator of the first Zionist Congress, who greatly admired the strategies and tactics of population control practiced by Cecil Rhodes. In searching for the connection between Rhodes and Herzl, one finds many sources which reflect the letters between Rhodes and Herzl with respect to colonizing Palestine, also a Rothschilds financed project. Reading from Palestine and Israel, A Challenge to Justice by John Quigley, we find on page 7 in a chapter titled The British Connection, Herzl approached Britain because he said it was the first to recognize the need for colonial expansion. According to him, the idea of Zionism, which is a colonial idea, should be easily and quickly understood in England. In 1902, Herzl approached Cecil Rhodes, who had recently colonized the territory of the Shona people as Rhodesia. Quote, You are being invited to help make history, Herzl said in a letter to Rhodes, It doesn't involve Africa, but a piece of Asia Minor, Palestine. Not Englishmen, but Jews. How then do I happen to turn to you, since this is an out-of-the-way matter for you? How indeed, because it is something colonial. That was end of quote. Britain had already shown interest in Palestine. In 1839, Lord Palmerston, as a foreign secretary, had opened a consulate in Jerusalem, instructing it to protect the Jews. Then in 1840, Palmerston proposed to the Ottoman Empire that it encourage settlement of European Jews in Palestine and that the Jews be permitted to make complaints against Ottoman officials through the British embassy in Constantinople. While nothing came of this plan, the British consul at Jerusalem, 
carried out Palmerston's directive to assist the Jews. When anti-Jewish violence erupted in Damascus in 1840, Britain extended protection to the Jews in Palestine. After the demise of Herzl, Haim Wiseman continued to progress the Rothschild's finance plans of Zionism, applying the model of Cecil Rhodes to the colonization of Palestine. Reading from A History of the Middle East by Saul Friedman, we find on page 223, under the chapter heading Political Zionism, the following passages in context of colonizing Palestine in the 19th century. Quote, What followed on October 28, 1898, must go down as one of the most surrealistic moments in history. A few miles away, outside Jaffa, on the road to Jerusalem, at the entry to one of Lord Rothschild's colonies, Herzl and a group of Jewish children greeted the Kaiser with a chorus of the German national anthem. In fact, the Kaiser had no intention of supporting Jewish nationalism. Instead, he told Abdul Hamid, The Zionists are not dangerous to Turkey, but the Jews everywhere are a nuisance we should like to get rid of. Later, Herzl would express relief that the Jews had not been enrolled under German protection, where they would have had to have paid a large interest fee. Between 1899 and 1901, Herzl tried a direct approach to Abdul Hamid. A meeting with the Sultan on May 17, 1901, arranged by Professor Armin Vanberry, a Jewish apostate to Islam. It went rather well. For his part, Herzl promised to erase the billion-dollar Ottoman public debt. In return, Abdul Hamid awarded him the Grand Cordon of the Order of the Mehajid and a sampling of Turkish cigarettes, while Herzl appealed for funds from Nathan Rothschild, Sir Thomas Lipton, Cecil Rhodes, Andrew Carnegie, and the French Pierre family. Abdul Hamid privately confirmed that he had no intention of alienating land that had been won by Turkish blood. In frustration, Herzl turned to Great Britain, Abdul Hamid's worst enemy. Reading from the Jewish Question in German Literature by Richie Robertson, on page 476 we find the connection between Rhodes, Herzl, and the Prussian education system talked about by former New York Teacher of the Year, John Taylor Gatto. Herzl felt an affinity with another strong-willed visionary, Cecil Rhodes, and drafted a letter to him requesting help in which he said, You, Mr. Rhodes, are either a politician full of fantasy or a practical fantasist. But Rhodes died before the two could enter into contract. Herzl's Jewish state was modeled on Rhodesia, insofar as Rhodes' chartered company suggested the settlement by formal charter guaranteeing the settlers' rights that Herzl proposed to the Sultan of Turkey in 1899. Herzl also compares his project to Stanley's quest for Livingstone and to the exploitation of gold mines on the South African Rand. Throughout his life, Herzl was fascinated by Prussianism. He confided in his diary, If I could be whatever I'd like to, I should be a Prussian nobleman of ancient lineage. According to Wikipedia, the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland, also known as the British Zionist Federation, or simply the Zionist Federation, was established in 1899 to campaign for a permanent homeland for the Jewish people. 
The Zionist Federation is an umbrella organization for the Zionist movement in the United Kingdom, representing more than 120 organizations and 50,000 affiliated members. Among its aims and objectives, the Zionist Federation lists support, coordinate, and facilitate the work of all its affiliates nationwide and to continue its commitment to the Zionist youth movements, encourage the participation of Jews in Zionist activities, including education, culture, Hebrew language, and Israel information, underpinned by the belief that the main goal of Zionism is aliyah. I'm not sure what that is. We'll look that up. The Zionist Federation is an umbrella organization encompassing most of the Zionist organizations and individuals in the country and as such represents the Zionist movement in the United Kingdom. In 1917, the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur James Balfour, communicated the Balfour Declaration to the leader of United Kingdom's Jewish community, Lord Rothschilds, for transmission to the Zionist Federation. He said, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet, Arthur Balfour. Now, I thought this was interesting. The cover of the PDF for this book is a man on top of a turtle. He's riding a turtle. It says here, Rothschilds had his photograph taken riding on a giant turtle and once drove a carriage harnessed to six zebras to Buckingham Palace. Always interested in the turtle symbology because of the Fabian Society. And here's another connection to Cecil Rhodes. We know that Lord Milner took over for Rhodes once he passed away. And he probably ended up being an even bigger influence in some ways than Rhodes. Now, Grove says in here on page 169 of his posthumously published 1981 book, The anglo American establishment. Georgetown University history professor Carol Quigley explained that the Balfour Declaration actually was drafted by Lord Alfred Milner. Quigley wrote, This declaration is always known as the Balfour Declaration, should rather be called the Milner Declaration, since Milner was the actual draftsman and was apparently its chief supporter in the War Cabinet. This fact was not made public until the 21st of July, 1937. At the time, Ormsby Gore, speaking for the government in the Commons, said, The draft, as originally put up by Lord Balfour, was not the final draft approved by the War Cabinet. The particular draft assented to by the War Cabinet, and afterwards the Allied governments and the United States, and finally embodied in the mandate, happens to have been drafted by Lord Milner. The actual final draft had to be issued in the name of a foreign secretary, but the actual draftsman was Lord Milner. It is worthy to note that Lord Milner, Leo Amory, and and Arthur Balfour were all protagonists playing lead roles in the manifestation of the goals laid out by the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes and therefore agents of the Rothschild International Banking Dynasty's plans to subjugate America into the British Empire. Whether or not Balfour, Milner, or Leo Amory wrote the Balfour Declaration, nevertheless it was addressed to Baron 
Walter Rothschild's, and Balfour, Milner, and Amory's efforts were all blessed and financed by the Rothschild's dynasty in line with their efforts to colonize Palestine. And we're getting a little bit more of a view of the spider with a thousand legs. This is where Israel and Zionism plays into the Council on Foreign Relations. You know, the world is starting to look smaller and smaller when you look at it through the prism of history and you get these little-known facts. And thanks to people like Richard Grove, we can pass those on and it'll help us to have a better worldview and understand that this stuff's been going on for 120-plus years and uh, these guys have a network unlike any other and they can instantaneously communicate. So it's no wonder that the whole world can be manipulated and propagandized so easily because they've had these groups in place for so very long that the average citizen couldn't even begin to fathom it because they still think that suggesting that the JFK murder was something other than what the official narrative was said to be is a conspiracy. So, you know, it's it's wild, but we got to keep keep pushing, adding more and more facts. We're stacking up the evidence because this is not just one issue as far as Zionism goes. It's a bigger issue than just that. And that's what I'm trying to do with my show altogether is I'm trying to kind of get my own worldview as I find out more and more information. You know, my, my mind will change on this, that, or the other when I get more information. It helps me to kind of draw a line, uh, kind of map things out. And Sometimes you have to move the pieces around or you move the, the places around a little bit and you say, okay, now I understand this part. That starts to make sense. You know, it's just adding up the evidence, really. Okay, Grove goes on to say, why does Britain identify with the Zionists? To answer this question, we must make ourselves familiar with the movement known as the British-Israel World Federation, also known as World Federalism or British-Israeliism. And I believe that Walter Cronkite was a part of the World Federalists. I'm not sure if that's the same thing, but I believe it is. He says, according to Wikipedia... The British-Israel World Federation was born as a movement in the 19th century and federated in 1919 during the days when the sun never set on the British Empire. From 1924, the organization maintained an office next to Buckingham Palace. In 1990, it moved to Putney on the Thames, but since 2003 has been based near Bishop Auckland. British-Israeliism, also called Anglo-Israeliism, is a doctrine based on the hypothesis that the people of Western European descent, particularly those in Great Britain, are the direct lineal descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. The doctrine often includes the tenet that the British royal family is directly descended from the line of King David. Zionists, such as the Warburgs, Schiffs, and Kuhn Loeb, were instrumental in the creation of the Federal Reserve Banking System, which then spawned the rise, direct financing, and protection of Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, and later Hitler. The story of the 20th century democide, funded by the Rothschild International Banking Syndicate, is distilled in detail in monumental works such as Anthony C. Sutton's Wall Street Trilogy, Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, 
and the Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. And on the British Cecil Rhodes connection, Ralph Schoenman in The Hidden History of Zionism, he says this. He talks about how many of the Zionists were traveling over to South Africa because they had established a Jewish community over there. In identifying Zionism with South African settler ideology, Haim Wiseman was following the early admiration expressed by Theodore Herzl, the founder of political Zionism, for the quintessential colonial ideologue, Sir Cecil Rhodes. Herzl's attempt to model his own political future on the achievement of Rhodes. This is the words of Herzl. Naturally, there are big differences between Cecil Rhodes and my humble self, the personal ones very much in my disfavor. The objective ones, however, are greatly in favor of the Zionist movement. Herzl advocating achieving Zionist dispersal of the Palestinians by using the methods pioneered by Rhodes, and he urged the formation of a Jewish counterpart to a colonial chartered company, an amalgam of colonial and entrepreneurial exploitation. Herzl said, The Jewish company is partly modeled on the lines of a great acquisition company. It might be called a Jewish charter company, though it cannot exercise sovereign power and has no other than pure colonial tasks. He goes on to say, The poorest will go first to cultivate the soil. In accordance with the preconceived plan, they will construct roads, bridges, railways, telegraph installations, regulate rivers, and build their own habitations. There, labor will create trade, trade will create markets, and markets will attract new settlers. By 1934, a major group of South African investors and large capitalists had established Africa-Israel Investments to purchase land in Palestine. The company still exists after 54 years with South Africans as joint stockholders. The assets held by Israel's bank, Lumi. Now, how did the Rockefeller family play into the implementation of the modern state of Israel? Well, turns out that Richard Grove has some really good information on that as well. He's quoting some other authors, but uh, I'll talk about that. And really, it's no surprise that the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds are two of the most important and powerful families of the 20th century, even before that, and still to this day, despite what some people say. So let's look at this here. In a book called The Secret War Against the Jews, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People by former Department of Justice investigator John C. Loftus, he describes how the Rothschild's plan of colonizing Palestine was fertilized into reality by Nelson Rockefeller. Reading from pages 169 to 170, quote, The account of what happened inside Nelson Rockefeller's office comes from a very aged Israeli source. During the mid-1980s, he flew to the United States to meet one of the authors of this book. After several hours of discussion about Nazi war criminals, the conversation was steered to the topic of Zionist blackmail of Nelson Rockefeller. The Israeli spy was surprised but eventually admitted that he had been personally acquainted with Reuven Shiloh, Ben-Gurion's intelligence chief of Israel. 
who had masterminded the operation prior to creating the State of Israel in 1947. Here is his account of what happened when the Zionists confronted Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller skimmed through the dossier, demonstrating that Rockefeller had committed war crimes by financing the Nazis, and coolly began to bargain. We know that the Rockefellers, through Standard Oil, was fueling the Nazis' vehicles, for one, and they totally got away with that. Why is that? It's well documented. The, you know, GM worked with the Nazis, Ford worked with the Nazis, but they could not have done what they did without the fuel. Now, he goes on to say, in return for the votes in the Latin American bloc, he wanted guarantees that the Jews would keep their mouths shut about the flow of Nazi fugitives to South America. And of course, we know that many Nazis went there, and most likely Hitler did as well. There would be no Zionist Nazi hunting unit, no testimony at Nuremberg about the bankers or anyone else, not a single leak to the press about where the Nazis were living in South America or which Nazis were then and now working for Dulles, Alan Dulles, CIA, CFR. The subject of the Nazis was closed, period, forever. The choice was simple, Rockefeller explained. You can have vengeance or you can have a country, but you cannot have both. His choice of the word vengeance, not justice, left the Jews in no doubt where he stood. But the General Assembly of the United Nations would vote in only a few days. It was the last best chance the Jews would ever have. If the opportunity slipped by, they would not get another. According to the Israeli informant, whose account was corroborated by several other sources in the intelligence community, whom we've interviewed subsequently, Ben-Gurion's representative was heartsick. Counter-blackmail had not been in the game plan. He made a telephone call to try to obtain guidance. It took several hours before the reply came back. Yes. There really was no choice but to give Rockefeller what he wanted. On behalf of the still-unborn state of Israel, the promise was formally given to let the Nazis go free. The men who murdered the Jews of Europe were effectively given amnesty, except for the unlucky few who had already been punished. But the promise was conditional on Rockefeller delivering the votes. Don't worry, he assured them. Every country in Latin America will deliver a note in favor of Israel or abstain. Rockefeller said he would deliver, and he did. Loftus says that Nelson Rockefeller blackmailed to get Israel into the United Nations. Loftus also authored a book titled The Witness Tree, which tells the detailed story of how Nelson Rockefeller was blackmailed by Eleanor Dulles and the Zionists, affecting Rockefeller to use his persuasive measure of influence over the nation of Latin and South America to get the vote for the UN resolution to create the state of Israel. If Loftus is accurate in the case, what type of influence was gained over the United Nations by blackmailing the Rockefellers? Then he goes on to say, to answer that question, we'll take a look at how the United Nations was built in the first place. And of course, we know the Rockefellers, and of course, we know that the Rockefellers donated the land for the United Nations building in Turtle Bay. Remember that from the Fabian Society? It's a nice little neighborhood there called Turtle Bay where a bunch of the Fabians moved over to. 
Sometimes people even refer to the United Nations as Turtle Bay, he says in this book. And he says the initial offer was to locate the United Nations building on the Rockefeller family estate of Kikuit, but it was rejected, I probably pronounced that wrong, was rejected as being too isolated from Manhattan. It was $8.5 million at the time. It says, adjusted by inflation, $83.4 million. And this book's a few, few years old. The purchase was then funded by John D. Rockefeller Jr., who donated it to the city. Wallace Harrison, the personal architectural advisor for the Rockefeller family and prominent corporate architect, served as the director for planning of the United Nations headquarters. His firm, Harrison and Abramovitz, oversaw the execution of the design. He's got a bunch more information about that in there. I will add one more thing about the Rockefellers. He goes on to say, Following our UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's remarks on the 85th anniversary of the donation by John D. Rockefeller to endow the League of Nations Library in Geneva, I am honored to be here on this 85th anniversary of the historic donation of John D. Rockefeller Jr. to the League of Nations Library. At the time, Mr. Rockefeller said he made the gift based on the conviction that peace must be finally built on the foundation of well-informed public opinion. This powerful statement rings true today. If it is fitting that we are naming this room after him, I thank the family for donating the portrait of John D. Rockefeller that was displayed at the Rockefeller Foundation for 65 years. In offering this generous gift, David Rockefeller said that he hoped it would serve as a reminder of his father's generosity, but more importantly, his conviction that strong international organizations can help create a just, equitable, and peaceful world. And you can find this PDF on Tragedy and Hope. It's great. And I'll put the link in the show notes. He's got a lot more information on the Rockefellers and the United Nations, which is very interesting. So we heard the kind of whitewashed version of how the Rothschilds bought the land in Ottoman Palestine from the Sursok family. There's a lot more going on, of course, that we have been able to find out. And we're going to continue this series, and we're going to continue talking about that whole thing. I think it's very important to understand how the modern state was put together. You know, it wasn't some great deed that was done with everyone having the best interests of the Jews in mind. It was something altogether different. And I've come to realize this obsession with the land there in Palestine It's like a golden idol, the land itself. They are willing and have been willing to do anything. Anything goes. The ends justifies the means. So I think we have to just be honest about that. The same things that were going on there as far as the ethnic cleansing are still going on today. And we're going to get more into the massacres and different things uh, that have happened in Palestine that you don't know much about. And we're going to get into things like the bombing of the USS Liberty. We're going to talk about the King David Hotel bombing in Egypt. We're going to talk about the plot to blow up the English Parliament on behalf of the Zionists because they were pissed that the British government wasn't doing enough to help their cause. 
There's all kinds of history there that we are not aware of. In 1960, the Jewish National Fund issued the JNF Report Number 6, which said, Following an agreement between the government of Israel and the JNF, the Knesset in 1960 enacted the basic law called Israel Lands, which gave legal effect to the ancient tradition of ownership of the land in perpetuity by the Jewish people. The principle on which the JNF was founded, the same law extends that principle to the bulk of Israel's state domains. Any relationship to this land was governed by the following conditions spelled out in all the leases pertaining to property. The person leasing must be Jewish and must agree to execute all works connected with the cultivation of the holding only with Jewish labor. The consequence is that land cannot be leased to a non-Jew, nor can the lease be subleased, sold, mortgaged, given, or bequeathed to a non-Jew. Non-Jews cannot be employed on the land, nor in any work connected with cultivation. If these conditions are violated, both fines and the abrogation of the lease without any compensation will ensue. What is interesting is these regulations are not enforced just by the Israeli government, but by the JNF, and apply to all state lands which consist overwhelmingly of absentee property. Now, the absentee property is how they really acquired a whole lot of land. Through different massacres and pogroms, they ran people off their land, and then they said, look, they've left their land, and they just took it. This is a fact. You're not going to hear this most places. It's absolutely a fact, and we're going to go over some of these massacres, which have been detailed, but you would not dare hear about that in mainstream history or from the news, obviously. So you got a lot of people out there who are gatekeepers. Many of them are actually on the conservative side of things, and I have a hunch that they're getting some kind of financial compensation to toe the line on this one subject, because it's the one subject they will never touch, none of them. I've given more information on this subject in three episodes than Alex Jones ever gave in his entire history of InfoWars and the Alex Jones show. So, it is what it is. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of Those We Don't Speak Of, Part 3, and I hope that you enjoyed it. I could have went on and on with this information, but we're going to save that for future episodes. Now, I just want to say that in looking into this forbidden subject, which shouldn't be forbidden, and we obviously should be able to talk about it because this is history. That's why I don't put a lot of my own opinion into this, and I reference a lot of historical writings, because it's just another subject to me. It's just one of those subjects that's so broad because so much has been hidden from the modern day. But a few years ago, I think it was around the time that Trump got elected right before, Jeff Deist, who is the head of the Mises Institute, the Libertarian Institute, gave this speech on the state of politics, and he was talking about different things, but he mentioned the term blood and soil as something that people are still interested in and still care about. Of course they do, everywhere, all across the world. 
But instantly he was lambasted by all these limp-wristed, left-leaning people and these Zionists, and they were saying, of course, that he was anti-Semitic because that was a term that was used towards the Nazis during World War II. The same excuse to shut up everybody who has anything to say about anyone who's an Israeli, a Jew, or the like. Now, obviously, if you listen to the speech, it was not anti-Semitic in the least whatsoever. But I have noticed from doing the research on this subject in this series that I've never seen another group so obsessed with blood and soil, besides maybe the Nazis. So let's get that right out of the way there. And one last thing I'll mention is it wasn't just the Rothschilds who funded the modern state. There were different organizations and individuals that we'll talk about later on in the series. And I want to say, too, that Herzl did have a falling out with the Rothschilds. He petitioned them for more funding, and they turned him down. But turns out he had this issue with the Rothschilds. He said that they were continuing to bail out these farmers that they had shipped over there. Remember, they only wanted Jewish farmers, no Arabs whatsoever, on any of their lands that they had taken. These farmers weren't doing so well, and they kind of become a welfare class, and Herzl resented that. So he said that the Rothschilds were not really building up the Zionist state like he had had in mind. And so there was a rift there. So I just wanted to be clear about that. Herzl wasn't as argumentative and unreasonable as some of these Zionist organizations, as organizations tend to be in general. You know, these other countries that they had been in negotiations with to move the modern state or put the modern state of Israel in, a couple of these countries, they came to agreements with their government and said, yes, you can do it. But the Zionist organization said, no, we don't want that. We want Palestine instead. And Herzl was like, wait a minute, we're getting what we want. This is a, in a couple of instances, they had some very rich agricultural lands that they were going to be able to put the state in? No, they didn't want that. And Herzl was like, why? Why would you be like that? So anyway, he wasn't altogether unreasonable. He was actually a smart man, of course. A lot of these guys are very intelligent, and that's what makes them so dangerous. It's, again, by any means necessary. The ends justify the means. So we have to remember that when we're Talking about this subject in particular, it's still the same today. Anyway, I love you guys. Thank you for your patience. I hope that everyone is having a great day. Please share the show if you can. Support the show if you can. It is theoddmanout.patreon.com. Time is money, and I'm spending a lot of time researching this subject, more so than any subject I've ever looked into in my life because I know it's important to people. So thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Visit alternatecurrentradio.com and tell everybody about it as well. Cheers and blessings. And remember, the Zionist order is not our order. See you guys.
Yeah.